Well, good morning, all. Nice to see you. We should pray. The Lord be with you. God, we ask that as we continue to get our heads around the sacraments that you've promised to us to be outward and visible signs of the inward and spiritual graces you intend for each of us, that through study and conversation, we would indeed experience more grace, just as you intend. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so last time we left off having talked a bit about confirmation. Um, what we're, what we're open, opening with today, honestly, that we didn't get to do last time, is if you're willing to share your story about confirmation, those of you that were confirmed, how confirmation was for you an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, if it was. Yeah. So not a lot of memories. Uh, how old were you? Well, at that time, everybody got confirmed when they were 12, pretty much. 12. I was actually 13, based on where we were. Okay. And then in, where you, in your practice, you didn't have communion until you were confirmed. Right. So that was sort of the entry right into communion. And even though you don't necessarily remember the classes and the prep, you do remember having communion and your sister asking you what it was like. <laughs> Yeah. That's not the answer you were looking for. No, I think it's a great answer. No, I'm not, I'm not looking for any specific answer. I'm looking for your experience with confirmation. Just in a curiosity as a follow-up, um, you've been to confirmations since then. Do they evoke anything for you? I've not been through the whole class with any particular group since then. Um, I guess I think a little more about the commitment every time I'm exposed to it. It's, which at the time I really didn't think about it. It was sort of a more adult it's what you did. Yeah, but since then, when you even just go to a rite yeah. at St. Thomas or somewhere else and see it, you tend to think more about the commitment. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I'm going to just hold this up so that we can hear you, if that's okay. Um, yeah, I was confirmed when I was 15 years old, and uh, I went to the same, I went to the catechism, and um, it was a, before you received communion, and I was confirmed with my mother. We both had, she was from England, and she had a good friend that was from England, and she was C of E. So we started going to the church, and I had actually been baptized in a Presbyterian church, and um, kind of fell in love with the Episcopal church. And um, I just remember that was, we did go through the whole catechism. And um, I remember the bishop who did it, and so it was, it was, it was kind of a right because I had chosen. It oh. wasn't something that, you know, had, so it was pretty much that for me. Yeah. So it really represented something you chose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anybody else? Lots of people. This is good. I remember my confirmation really well. Um, it was in... Uh, Shaker Heights, Ohio, Christ Church, and we met in the library and we did the catechism. Uh, I didn't, we didn't call it the catechism, but that's, and I learned it, 
And I, at the time, I felt like it was a really spiritual time. I was 12. I don't really remember the bishop, but I do remember that that's when I received my first communion, and it was an, it was an important, really important for me. I felt like um, I did feel that I was a grown-up mm -hmm. then because I knew more about the church. So that I thought confirmation was really important because, of course, I don't remember my baptism because I was tiny. Sure. Thanks. 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 Well, I had a similar experience. I, <clears throat> I was 12, 13, went through a confirmation class, which I don't remember a whole lot of. And then um, the bishop coadjutor, I it was in a old St. John's Church in Washington, D.C., and the bishop came and, and um, put some very heavy hands on my head. <laughs> and, and that, too, was the first time I received communion, was at that point. Um, I was baptized, I mean, I had confirmation in Houston with uh, Bishop John Markowski of the Galveston, Houston Diocese, Roman Catholic, um, at 12 years old. We had already made our first communion at eight years old, um, seven or eight. Um, I remember the catechism was mostly about the Holy Spirit and that at that time we received the power to, or we were empowered by the Spirit to go out and spread the word. Uh, and we were all scared to death that the bishop was gonna slap us real hard. <laughs> but he didn't, he, he just gave us a little tap. <laughs> hey, just out of curiosity, people who were confirmed, how many of you had bishops that slapped people, even symbolically? Yeah, I'd never heard of that until I got to Texas. <laughs> the slap, yeah. Yeah. It must, you know, I don't know that it's just a Southern thing either because my bishop in San Diego was a Southerner. He was a native Texan in Benetsuwani. So you heard that at Iona you heard this or somewhere else? Here at, at St. Thomas. Okay. And the slap is more of a of a, of a Latin American thing. Oh, did any of your babies get slapped? That's kind of curiosity. My daughter did not get slapped. Did anybody anybody's babies get slapped when they were born? I think that's like, I don't know if it happens anymore, does it? I know it used to. I know it used to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do they rub their feet? And then mine just got a little tube down because they had to pump her stomach. Okay. <laughs> she was awake, let me tell you. That day, if she wasn't, that tube woke her up. I was uh, confirmed at 12 or 13 in southwest Florida in Fort Myers, and I, I wasn't slapped. I don't remember in I did not take communion before then, so it was a definite rite of passage. I do remember this was the worst thing I remember is that my brother, who's four years older, was undergoing the classes with me, um, probably under duress. His, his friend 
was the daughter of the priest, a, a woman in his own age, Celeste, in his own class. And I remember my brother had told me he didn't believe, particularly he was an atheist, and I just trotted up to his girlfriend, not his girlfriend, his friend, unfortunately in front of her father, who was a priest, and said, my brother says you're an atheist. And uh, it was, you know, I don't think he ever went back <laughs> to, it was, but... What I did do later on, I think I was in my early 30s. We were living in Kingwood, which is in northeast Houston, yeah. and I was going to Good Shepherd, and I attended confirmation classes again. Uh, unfortunately, I don't remember a whole lot. I mean, I remember learning some about the sun. I remember learning the name of the Sanctus bells mm -hmm. because the Sanctus bells were very, we had a very, I, I don't want to use the word high, but it was a more formal church in Fort Myers, and we had the Sanctus Bell. So I remember learning more, but it was more of a intellectual decision to recommit myself than anything I remember learning. Yeah, so makes sense, thanks. Thanks. Anybody else want to share about confirmation? Thank you. Well, I was a lot older. I was 28. Yeah. And um, I'd actually grown up a Methodist, and then when I was in my 20s, started going to the Episcopal Church. and. Friendswood, Good Shepherd is where it was. Bill Sterling was mm -hmm. the person, the priest there. And then uh, Bishop Benitez was the person who. And it was just very lovely. And I think it meant more than when I became a Methodist because I think I had a better understanding. Of what you were choosing mm -hmm. to. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Anybody else? Did you hear about the confirmation at St. Paul? No. This last time with the bishop? No. And all the fire alarms went off in the middle of it. That's and lovely. they stayed on until the whole service was over. That's interesting. So Marianne said that at St. Paul's over here, the last confirmation service, the fire alarm went off and nobody moved. <laughs> Actually, it was the cardinal was there. A cardinal, yeah. Right, you're right. And at that time, everybody had parked everywhere, and the firemen couldn't get in. So the alarm stayed on forever, and they finally drove across the lawn. And the bishop is continuing his service because he was in the middle of it. So yeah. Yeah, so having a fire alarm go off for a long time on confirmation day, that probably is a memorable experience, right? Yeah. Well, the cardinal didn't think he'd be back soon. Yeah. Well, I bet the fire department had something to say, too, about people parking in the fire lane, <laughs> which is not something you should do even on confirmation day. Well, um, well, thank you for sharing. I mean, again, I, I, I think what's interesting about confirmation that we don't always remember is that you can indefinitely renew your confirmation vows, indefinitely. So it's sort of like baptism in the sense that you're never rebaptized. you remember your baptism. And again, this is why I think the prayer book has made baptism public, so that you have the opportunity, even if you don't remember the moment, to remember, remember the spirit of being baptized at least four times a year is sort of how it's meant to, to be done. Um, and confirmation is theoretically, I think, something that happens about once a year if you get a bishop's visitation, this opportunity to remember. And we've had people, some of them have already shared here that they've done it, but we've had people that have renewed their vows, and that's always something you can do um, 
really what we do here at St. Thomas is we have maybe eight classes that are, that are really uh, discussion-based platforms, and uh, we just ask you to try to come to, I don't remember, six out of the eight classes so that you have a real opportunity to ask questions and weigh in on what this might mean for you and, and, and get answers to questions you, you know, that you think would be helpful for you going forward. And we ask people to do some service, like be a lector or be an usher or something like that to really experience a leadership role in the church. And we ask people to do service, um, whether it's at ICM or the Beacon or something like that. So uh, all of those are hopefully really good, good ways for people to participate in the life of the church and in, and in spiritual maturity. And, and uh, you know, if people can't do it, they can't do it. But, but that's kind of what we ask And our next one is on November the 12th. Uh, interesting thing happening. The Texas has just, just, just about two months ago, hired a new bishop. Um, this is not a, an official bishop, like someone who votes in the House of Bishops. We have three of those. You know, every diocese has a bishop diocesan. That's Andy Doyle, who is the Diocese of Texas in, in human form, right? He holds the deed to this church and every other deed. It sort of belongs to by the diocesan corporation and vicariously then to him. And those two other uh, bishops, they're called suffragans because they vote, and that represents an expense for them to go to the House of Bishops, wherever that meets, and vote. In a general con convention, that's sort of a tricameral body of bishops, clergy, and laity. Uh, and those bishops diocesan also get a vote. Uh, and then... There are retired bishops or bishops who are not suffragan or diocesan that can serve in a diocese. And the thing is, once you're a bishop, again, you're a bishop for life unless you recant your vows, even if you're not serving a diocese. So last year in November, we had Bishop um, Philip Duncan, who had retired from the Central Gulf Coast, came and did our confirmation. But this year, it's our new bishop who's on the diocesan payroll even though he's not voting in the tricameral legislation, and that's Hector Monterosso. Um, and, and the diocese recently strategically hired him for, for three reasons, I think. One is, um, with three bishops and 135 parishes, the visitation schedule is really difficult. Um, in fact, many times, if a bishop was going to come, you might have to have him for an even song on a Tuesday, which is just dreadful. You know, <laughs> it's dreadful. I can tell you as a priest, there's nothing worse than having a bishop come in the evening. Um, you just hope your folks will be nice and show up. But really, Sunday mornings is when you want bishops. So having the fourth bishop means all bishop visitations, formal ones, now happen on Sunday mornings. <laughs> for every parish. That's nice. And should be a one, a, an annual or 14-month rota that you get one of those. That's good. Hector is also somehow known to, to Bishop Andy and, and maybe other members of the diocese. Garmin somehow knows him too. Um, of course, he's a native Spanish speaker, and uh, this is part of our, this is part of Texas, right, that, that we need that interesting left. And Andy is almost a native Spanish speaker. He did some time as a child in Mexico. Or, yeah, I think so. I, I actually have an easier time understanding Andy Doyle speaking Spanish than I do native Spanish speakers because he doesn't use a dialect. You, you know, he has a very just even accent, you know, and, and uh, he's tremendously gifted that way. But, but Hector is, is, is somebody, right, who has that, that strong 
that strong reach out. So, um, so we'll get to see him pretty soon, uh, November the 12th, um, which means confirmation classes sort of start here um, probably the middle of September. If you're, if you're interested in sitting in on classes and, and seeing what it reminds you of or if it's helpful for you or not, that's always an invitation. You don't have to renew your vows formally or be confirmed to go to a class. It really is an open platform to sort of talk about the Episcopal Church as we understand it as, and it's changing and what faith you are interested in confirming. You know, again, I think the thing to remind us of is that at, and it's not bad, we just have to consider this is all, always happens depending on your age. When you're 10 and you're 12 years old, it's really hard for you to, conf- to be doing a lot of confirming. Really, those are more times of conformation, if that makes sense. Um, this is a curious idea um, that, that, that I've had having grown up low evangelical and, and been, I haven't really been in an Episcopal diocese where I saw like amazing children's ministry. I hope that's okay to say. Um, and, and I think it's because in the evangelical world, we were not afraid of indoctrinating people. In fact, that was the whole function of the evangelical world was to indoctrinate children and adults. So there really wasn't a lot of variety in faith in the evangelical tradition I grew up in. There were right answers, you know. So, of course, adults with great pride and, and, and with great intention and high hopes would indoctrinate children regularly. And it turns out that children's brains need indoctrination, right? I mean, children can't think abstractly and weigh options. They just can't do that. So, so it works great. I think there's this thing in the Episcopal Church, say, particularly in the last 50 years, right, where we, we don't want to indoctrinate our children. For good reason. We see the harms of it, right? We, we sort of worry about telling, telling children that God is like blank when we know that there's ambiguity and mystery, right? The thing is that ambiguity and mystery aren't really great things for indoctrination, uh, typically. And, and, and I think that's that whole bit, right, where regardless of, of, of how it happened, there's this evolution in our life, I think, where we move from conformity to confirming. Uh, I, I think that's a big part of our faith journey, honestly, is that uh, we come to the point where Either we say, yeah, I do totally believe and trust everything, or we say, yeah, that one thing's not really working for me, and um, that's not really a challenge to my spiritual relationship with God or other people. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Um, I grew up in, really, with a faith tradition where if you didn't believe some doctrinal point that really challenged your membership in the community and that challenged your relationship with God, right, because you were a heretic. At one point, you were, just, you were totally off. And it's been really nice to come and, and to grow up a little bit and say, you know, particularly to see people that I love who have wildly different spiritual and doctrinal opinions, who pray totally different or sometimes not at all, and have wonderful relationships with God. And it's nice to hold room and say, I don't know how you do that, but I love you. <laughs> and I think that's what confirmation's about. I think confirmation is this point we get to in adulthood and it's evolving where we look at our own spiritual life with God and we say, gosh, I sure shall feel like I, it seems like I might be deficient but I love that God is related to me, even in my own felt deficiencies. And, I, and, and to have that confirmation 
that God is fully present with us, even if we do things in non-traditional ways, I think that's the stuff of adulthood, you know? I might have oversold it. But hopefully, hearing through this, I mean, really, we have an opportunity, not just through the right, but ongoing in our lives to confirm the faith that we have, which is sometimes a changing faith, right? Uh, and, and I think that's part of the strength. That's part of the strength. You know, I, I just, I'm oversharing, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Um, I, I taught at a, at a Christian school, and um, these were high schoolers and middle schoolers. And uh, at that point, you know, best education says indoctrination needs to be over. You need to have done that by the time somebody's in the seventh grade. It's really when you need to have put the direct inputs in. And then when they get to the high school age, pedagogically, you need to be giving them more sort of case study approaches where they they use what they know to to weigh specific situations and come out with basically case law, you know, which is how the whole legal system is based. Well, we we were so sort of... uh, coached by our administration that we didn't want to introduce any doubt to our teenagers, to our high schoolers, because life was tough enough. What we needed to do was eliminate all doubt from their lives so that they could go on being good believing Christians. And, and you know how that worked was not well. Um, the way it worked was if somebody said something that sounded ambiguous or doubtful in a class, I didn't even have to do this as a teacher. Their peers would say, that's terrible. <laughs> And then when they graduated high school and weren't living with their parents or in that community anymore, they were done. We did this interesting survey in my AP statistics class where we asked people how many of them believed that their faith would continue to influence their life after they graduated high school. 30%. And that was a place where it wasn't safe to tell the truth even in a random survey. You know? And I think it's important for us to remember there's a time for conformation and then there's a time for confirmation. Does that that sort of make sense, you know? I I, I sort of think that we've kind of made this mistake where we think, oh, church is dying and people don't like church anymore, so we better stand up for it. You know, we better have all the right answers. And, And I don't think there's anything bigger of a turnoff for me than somebody who has a right answer without having listened to my story. Do, do you know what I mean? I think it's natural for um, high school kids to rebel or college, and if they don't have anything to rebel against, if they don't have what they've heard when they were 12, they, they really don't, I don't think they have any place to go until they start seeking like you did, but you were... My, you would have been very happy with my rebellion in your home. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you, you'd have been so happy. Yeah. No, I mean, I think in some ways you're right. And I just, I do want to say what's great about my evangelical heritage, and this is really quite great, is I memorized swaths of scripture. So much so that it's almost subconscious. You know, I find myself trying to relate personal struggles and family situations and parishioner lives to scripture because the words the words are submerged in my person i don't know that we do that well as an episcopal church but i'll tell you what we do instead is prayer book language and liturgy become submerged 
you know, there's, it's interesting where you can find yourself, like I'll even find myself talking to somebody like at Starbucks who in a completely non-religious phrase and I'll find myself getting ready to say something like myself, my soul, and my body, you know, <laughs> it's just like bizarre. Um, and I often like don't say it, but it's in my brain that that's what I'm going to say. And I do think that's what we offer our children. And, and I, and I want to say that's one of the best things about having children in a worship service. It's always a struggle, right? Do you put them in Sunday school or do you put them in worship? And of course, they both have pluses, but one of the pluses about being in worship is they're exposed to beautiful language that they, they can go deep in their well for the rest of their life. You, 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 you know what I mean? Um, and I think that's the bit, right, is when that, that bit of conformation that was natural and necessary then can be drawn from as an adult as you confirm your faith and you start to realize, like, in the middle of my doubt or in the middle of uncertainty, I am loving with my whole self, my soul and my body, you know? I mean, this, those sorts of phrases are really quite, they're quite lovely and, and, and poetic and they capture God. And of course, most of them are biblical anyway or amalgamations. We just don't know the chapter and verse like I did in my upbringing. Does that, does that make sense? We know Book of Common Prayer, page 376. <laughs> Maybe. So I think godly play is really interesting, and I think it's, you know, and, it, and it's, it's, godly play is this Montessori-based thing where they tell, they tell stories from the Bible, and they have physical interaction, which is just great pedagogy. I mean, we sort of all know that. You, you know, there's, there's no lecture that lasts more than three minutes, because the three-year-old's attention span is three minutes. Interesting thing happens, by the way, when you, when you go to education classes, like to be a high school, middle school, elementary school teacher. They tell you never to lecture more than one minute per eight per year old, your audience is, right? And they'll do that in a two-hour lecture <laughs> and chide you for long lectures in your classroom. It's bizarre. Um, so so, so they, they have this great pedagogy and there's these stories, and then there's physical interaction, and then children always get to say where they would be in the story, and they get to say what the story meant to them in some new ways. I mean, they have theological reflection, and, and really what they're doing is they're introducing children at a very young age to, to what we want adults to be able to do. Hear a story, imagine how it affects them, and reflect back on what difference it makes. I mean, that's confirmation. Of course, what we have to do is have the story, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's the key bit. And, and godly play does do that. And, and the physical elements, you know, just help them concretize the story in their memory, I think. So I think it's really, it's really quite good. But, but you could do a godly play lesson as an adult, and I promise you it'll be beneficial to you, um, particularly if the other adults in the room are really engaging with you. You know, they're really really reflecting on the story. I mean, this is where, if you've been to a funeral with me, the, the godly play lesson is the one that says, you know, when you put a snuffer on a candle, it doesn't put the light down, it changes it. Well, that's, that's really a helpful image to think that light doesn't go out, it's just changed. And of course, that's, that's true, right? It's, it's changed into smoke, it doesn't just go out and it rises. I mean, that's, that's really a lovely children's image, but quite honestly, like, that's the substance of our faith. I mean, that's in the funerary rite. In the, in the Lord, life is not ended, but changed. I mean, this is really helpful stuff, you know? Um, if you're wondering why we're offering a 34-week Bible study, uh, it's so that 
so that we can have the, the case, the fact pattern, to do the reflection off of. One of the hard things about being an Episcopalian is, is it assumes we already know the Bible backward and forward so that when you hear the lectionary, you know where it's lifted from. You know, the lectionary will not tell you the whole Jacob story or the Joseph story. In fact, I think they often skip some of the juicier bits, <laughs> probably on purpose. You know, there's certain chapters of the Bible that don't make it into the lectionary, like Judges 19. And I'm grateful for that. If you want to know why, go home and read Judges 19. Uh, that is not in the lectionary because it's probably not congregationally uplifting. I, I don't really know what you do with that story. However... To miss out on a story like that, frankly, is to miss out on, on a story that reflects a lot of the reality we live in today. Um, so, so you're going to hear about this Bible study. I encourage you to consider uh, taking part in it and you're considering it because, again, this is, this is helping do conformation and confirmation at the same time, giving you the, the fact pattern, the story pattern, and asking you to do something with it. Uh, maybe that's all there is to say about confirmation. I may have really overdone it. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. And it just blew me away. It was my grandson who was being confirmed as cathedral the first time I saw that. And, you know, it, it really did. I, the same way that when Craig was ordained, all of the clergy who were present laid hands on him. And to be able to, I mean, in, you know, at the cathedral, we were invited to lay hands on I just was blown away. Yeah. I've been to lots of confirmations. Yeah. But, um, and I, I don't know how widespread it is. Maybe everybody is doing it. No, we didn't do it in San Diego. What Janet said is out of three dioceses she's been a part of, this is the only one where at confirmation people in the audience are welcome to come and lay their hands on the person being confirmed. And of course, the biggest, if you were here two years ago for our 50th anniversary, one of our confirmands had a hundred something people. I mean, there, there's this photo in the hallway of half the church getting up there and laying hands to support. I mean, it's a beautiful thing, right? It's a beautiful thing. You rarely does that happen. And I'll tell you, you know, the clergy come and do it at, at ordination, but I don't know why lay people don't do it too. <laughs> That's what they're there for, to lay their hands on that clergy, you know, I mean, on that person becoming a cleric. It's, it's a really a neat thing. It is. In, in, the presence of the Holy Spirit in community and in real people's bodies that you're going to see the next Sunday, you know, or Wednesday night or whenever. It's, it's, that's a neat thing. You're right. I, I, I'd almost forgotten. That I, I've, I've not heard of any other diocese doing that either, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do it. Yes, ma'am. Yes. And they put their hand on our shoulder while we were doing service. So we have sponsors for confirmation here. It's always the priest. <laughs> so I sponsor everybody. But then your other, honestly, your other sponsor who amount to your family and friends and those who you've ministered to and those who know this, like you are confirming the faith you already have, they get up. So there's just a crowd of people, you know, and that's a neat thing. That's a really neat thing. Well, that leaves one more sacrament for us to talk about, and that's unction. Does anybody know what that is? We called it extreme unction. Well, so it's interesting that you should know that there's, that there's different bits. In the Roman church, you probably know of the sacrament as the last rites, which is 
technically called extreme unction. However, you should know that sacramental is not just at the point of death, but any anointing with oil is, is, this, is the oldest uh, of the seven sacraments. So just to think through this, there's anointing with oil, and then that turns to at the point of death, and it's, it's making a resurgence back into all points of life. You know, in the, in the 76 prayer book, we no longer have last rites as a title in the Episcopal Church. We now have prayers at the time of death. Does that make sense? Now, if somebody asks for last rites, I'm not going to correct them. <laughs> Unless they survive. Uh, we'll have that discussion later. No, I mean, really, the thing is, and I think what's, what's really helpful is we figured out, you can try to give somebody their last rites, and they may not have been ready to die, and you've done that. And how many times can you give somebody their last rites? Well, I guess theoretically you could do it as many times as you want, and eventually it'll work. <laughs> but I think there's some recognition, right, that there's mystery to life, right? And, and, and I think, I think we, we all get that anecdotally. You know, I know people who were not ready to die, and they did. You do too. They died suddenly. I know sick people who had Two days to live, and two years later, there they were, right? And, and, and some of that is natural, and some of it, I'm convinced, is that the people have some control of, as to when they're going to die, and when they're not ready, they're not going to. You know, we all know people that have waited for their grandson to come in, and then the, the person enters the room, and they couldn't see or hear, and, then, and they die right then. You, you know these kind of stories? Uh, one of our good friends died on Easter last year, and... Um, the day before, all of his children had come to see him. And the next, they saw him that morning and they went to church and he died while they went to church. And I'm, and I'm sure that's what he wanted. He did not want to die in front of his children, but he wanted to see them all. You, you know, that kind of story. My mother was with her father when he died and, and she knew death was imminent, you know. And she was in the bed with him and he waited till she went to sleep. Now you could say, no, he didn't know that, but... She's confident, and I am too, that he waited. So the, I think we have some of that going on, and that makes last rites really, really difficult because at sort of at the end of the last rites, you say, go away now. <laughs> Beep. <laughs> Beep. <laughs> Any minute. It can be really awkward. So what we do, really, and, 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 and I'll tell you, every priest does this differently, but... But I think there is something great to this idea that we commend people into God's hands. And, and sort of what we try to say to people is when the Good Shepherd calls you, go. You know, when you're ready, go. Well, I think that's actually a pretty decent way to live, right? Um, but it certainly isn't last rites. Why do we use oil and when else do we use it? This is really good to know. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, they didn't have shampoo or conditioner. And you'll read these psalms that'll say, How pleasant it is to live with your brother in unity. It is like oil running down the head of Aaron, oil dripping from the beard. Now, I'll tell you, that's about the least desirable image in my mind, is oil running down my head, especially dripping off my beard. But apparently that was a desirable image, you know, as, as, as conditioner and oil was costly, honestly, right? I mean particularly in a desert situation. We think Middle Eastern people ate olives, but there's some debate as to whether they could do that. They might have had to press all of the olives 
to get the oil instead of eating them. Does it make sense what I'm saying, right? Because that was your way of cooking. They didn't have access to the kind of grease that, 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 that we have. You took your animals to the priest who didn't render them. The priest boiled them in a pot. So they didn't use a lot of animal fat for cooking. All the animals that you killed or that you hunted, you took to the priest. Does it, does it make sense what I'm saying? So, so where else did you get oil from? And the, and the, the answer is, is from olives, right? So, so olive oil is, is, is precious, even though it seems to be abundant. It's, again, less abundant than you think. I mean, it's not like you're getting lots of oil out of an olive, you know, and, and you've got donkeys or people turning hand mills or huge crushing stones, and, and, and that's where you get it from. Um, we know that unlike the British monarchy, you don't, your coronation did not amount to a crown on your head. Kings were anointed with oil, the first one being Saul. So... The prophet Samuel is going to make Saul king, and he dumps oil on his head. And, and there's a special word for that. If you're um, in Hebrew, the word for having been anointed with oil is Mashiach or Messiah. So that means you've been anointed with oil. And that means there's been lots of Messiahs. Saul and David and Solomon and Rehoboam, and then in the north, Jeroboam. I mean, there's just, and then there's two, two countries, and, and, and lots of people have been made messiahs. And the word for that in Greek is Christos. Christ is a messiah. So while Jesus is the Christ, there's lots of other Christs, including Saul and David and Rehoboam and Zerubbabel and lots of other names you can't pronounce, right? Does it make sense what I'm saying? Because they were anointed with oil, and that was the symbol of, of coronation. So I think that's part of the reason when we get to the New Testament that you read a book like James that says, anoint the sick with oil. Uh, and, and I think the reason being is that in the Christian community, Who's royalty in God's mind? And the answer is everybody is. <laughs> so there's this transformation, especially people at their greatest point of need. Or you just think through this, at their greatest point of need, that's exactly when they're royalty to God. So I think that's where the symbol has really come from. Now we have two kinds of oil. Do you know this? If you're on the, on the Lord's Table Guild or the Altar Guild, you probably know this. There's two kinds of oil in the sacristy. You can chime in if you know what they are. Really not? Canola. Canola. No. Actually, you know, it's, it's great you mentioned that. <laughs> um, there's, there's one that's often labeled OI, and actually I don't remember why it's called that, but that's an oil that you put when you anoint people who are sick. So that would include at the time of death. Uh, and that in San Diego was olive oil that had been infused with rosemary. I should have brought it. It smells, I mean, it really it smells quite nice, right? The other kind is, a, is in a glass jar, usually, and it's called chrism. So oil of anointing and chrism. Chrism is used at baptism when we seal people with oil and say you're marked by the Holy Spirit and sealed as God's own forever and ever, right? We don't mix the oils. <laughs> I, I guess because they're meant to signify different things. Although, I'm going to tell you, I'm not really sure that they do. Do they uh, sanctify the... They have a chrism mass, I guess, that's um, I don't... I can't say I know when they do it. If I want... I'll tell you in San Diego, I got it um, 
during Holy Week. It wasn't on it wasn't on Monday Thursday, but we came to a renewal of vows, and there were a huge pot of oil for anointing and a huge pot of chrism. And then they gave like two ounce little plastic bottles to everybody, take as many as you want. And that's when they sort of christened the chrism. In Texas, uh, those things are made available at clergy conference or I can write the bishop's secretary and get it mailed to me. But I don't believe we christen the chrism at clergy conference, having been twice. I don't remember seeing a big jug of oil that got blessed. They must do it. Maybe they do, maybe they do it at the cathedral on some, on some day, that I, and I just don't know that. Does it make sense? But oil for anointing has been blessed by a bishop, so you know. And again, I think the main idea is that it marks us as royalty to God, especially in moments of great weakness or in great strength at baptism. Right? Some bishops use chrism at confirmation. Most don't. Most just lay their hands on a person's head, which is that sign of apostolic succession, passing the Holy Spirit on through the laying on of hands. Right? Um, I'll tell you this about oil for anointing. Uh, if you're waiting for um, commendation of the time of death to be anointed with oil, you're waiting too long um, because it's available to people at any moment of perceived Weakness. Now that's going to sound strange because we don't like to admit we're weak, honestly. Um, but it is this, this thing that can be received before a surgery or after a surgery in moments, frankly, of uh, parenting or, or other sort of confusion or stress or agitation. And, and what does it do? I mean, I think this is a really great question. Um, because it isn't magic, right? We don't, I don't get a wand. Um, I would be grateful for a, a holy wand that worked. Um, but I'll tell you, having, having grown up in a, in a, in a church that, I, as I told you, gave me some great gifts, like spontaneous prayer and uh, praying for people in their points of needs, I have never felt more connected to a person in prayer than when I've anointed them with oil. And this is really strange because I don't really know why this works. Uh, in my former faith life, you know, we'd pray for people and we might even put our hands on them, you know, when they were sick or whatever. But there's, there's something almost palpable that happens sort of down my spine or in my center of my being, even if I'm skeptical about anointing somebody with oil and laying hands on their head and praying for them. I don't know if it happens every time I do it, but probably it happens 95% of the time, which is a really high metric, I think. <laughs> and and I, I just, I can't explain it. Maybe the deal is there's this, this prayer that involves contact, which is just extremely united. I mean, what we, what we do is we sort of dab our thumb with oil and make the sign of the cross. So we, we say something like, I anoint you with oil in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and lay hands upon you. And then we start this intercessory prayer that goes something like, I mean, it's a formulaic one for me, honestly. I add elements to it depending on what people have talked about. But um, beseeching God to nourish you with grace and to give you an awareness of God's peaceful presence, especially in moments of, and this is where we fill in, pain or sickness or anxiety guilt or doubt, um, frustration, waiting for medical testing, those sorts of things, right, which are exactly the moments where we really need 
peace and grace to drive away from you all sickness of mind and body so that you might know the healing power of God's love more and more each day. I mean, that's the simple prayer. And I just told you, it's, it, in some ways, it's memorized and it's uniform and it's extremely meaningful every time I do it. To, to me, and I've had people say, I've never really felt that connection in prayer before today. I've never felt it that way. And I think that's why it's a sacrament, to be honest. And, and I think it's one of those things that's sort of in the Episcopal goodie box that very few people are partaking of the goodie. That's a darn good goodie. I mean, <laughs> it's a darn good goodie. Particularly uh, if you've never had it before. We do it, if I do the sacrament of reconciliation, otherwise called confession, right? At the end of the rite, when we've confessed and absolved, and I've said, pray for me a sinner, I usually also anoint the penitent with oil as well. Slightly different words, right? But isn't essentially what they're asking for is healing of mind, body, and spirit. That's why they're coming for reconciliation, because something's off. I guess I've already completely shared what I think about that sacrament. Yeah, the oil is, is actually runny. It, it should be runny. Traditionally, we use olive oil, but one of the tricks is um, that in the picks is the name of, or no, the picks is actually holds bread. It's an oil stock, which looks like a, it's a little pewter cylinder with a screw top. Sometimes it has a ring on the bottom so you can wear it on your finger and not have to fumble with it when you're in the place. Um, in it should be lamb's wool, uh, and that sort of just soaks it up so it doesn't run everywhere. I have friends that have little pitchers, clergy that have pitchers. One of them supposedly bought me one three years ago, and I don't know what happened to it because I haven't seen it. Um, but but she, pours, she pours oil out of it. Not a ton. It doesn't run down your beard or anything. But, but she, I think she pours a drop on your head out of the pitcher and then smears it with her thumb. Um, and, 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 and that works that works fine. Um, I've, I've been a little bit naughty and, and taken up some other healing oil that, that aren't olive oil. Like when I went to Iran, there was rose oil that I brought back that they had distilled, basically. They'd set up a still and put roses in there. And that's fragrant. I'll tell you, it's, that, that's fragrant. There's something really nice about that smell. Yeah, it's not like a, it's not like a copy. You know that perfume that like my grandmother probably wore that didn't, wasn't really made from roses, but was made from like petroleum. Do you, you know what I mean? It's sort of like some of those bathroom air fresheners. You don't want to smell like that. This is different from that. And when I was in Israel, I bought some pure nard, which is what, you know, the, the lady poured on Jesus's head. And this is important to know. The moment Jesus becomes the Christ is not at his baptism, because John was just using water. You don't anoint somebody at baptism unless you use chrism. Well, John wasn't using chrism. The moment Jesus becomes the Christ is when that sinful woman comes in and, and puts $100,000 worth of perfume on his head because that's made from oil. That's why that story is in the Gospels, in case you're wondering. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's why. Because that's the moment he's anointed with oil. Does that make sense? And it's curious to think about who did it. A sinful woman. She's the one who made him the Messiah. I mean, that's kind of a lovely story, right? 
And the connection that he had was staggering with her, which I think is why it's included. I mean, you could have included a lot of other stories. Pick that one. And people were really offended by it. You know, like Judas Iscariot was really offended because the perfume cost $80,000. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Judas says, Jesus, I mean, Jesus, that was $80,000. We could have fed poor people with that. And Jesus says in response, something really confusing, right? The poor you'll always have with you. Um, but you won't always have me. <laughs> and this woman has done something really important. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's a confusing story for me to hear. And in that, that's the moment in Mark when Judas goes to betray Jesus. Not because he's a thief. That's from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John says Judas was stealing money. In Mark, Judas is offended at the grandiosity of this, and he's not happy with Jesus' answer about it. I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm not really happy with Jesus' answer either. It, it would help you see if, you, if you'd read that Jesus is actually quoting Deuteronomy. And this is one of those things you get when you read through the Bible. Deuteronomy says, The poor you always have with you because of the hardness of your own hearts. They will always be poor in the land because you don't share your resources with them. That's what Jesus is saying. So in some ways, Judas is mad at the grandiosity and the waste, and Jesus' reply is, you're part of the problem. <laughs> Which is an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I've, I've been told that one of the um, biggest marks of maturity is being able to receive a compliment. You ever heard that before? I think there's something to it. Um, I don't mean receive a compliment and say, oh, that was nothing, you know, or that wasn't as good as you thought it was. I'm a professional at those kinds of remarks. I mean the kind where you receive it with gratitude and it nourishes you. As a mark of maturity, I'm pretty immature, right, to be able to receive those. I wonder if that isn't part of what the story is about. Her anointing is good enough. Her anointing is good enough. And something that filled Jesus with gratitude instead of doubt or anxiety. I mean, just sort of think about that, right? Receiving an extravagant gift is a spiritual discipline. I'm, I, I'm positive it is. And yes, there are also poor people in the world. I mean, so that's, that's, that's a hard thing to balance. That was really an aside. Um, I, I, I've, I've got to tell you, though, if, if you find yourself in a moment of need or weakness, it's not an imposition. I'll just speak for myself. I don't know how other priests are. It's the opposite of an imposition to say, would you pray for me? And if you ask me to pray for you and I'm there or here, I probably will say, would you like me to anoint you with oil? And, and that's your opportunity to say yes. <laughs> to say yes. Um, and, and again, it's not designed just for people who are dying. It's designed for us who are experiencing death in places of our lives right now. Death being that separation from God or that separation from joy. I, every parent I know has experienced that as a parent. Especially a parent of teenagers, right? I, I can tell you every spouse I know has experienced that in their marriage. I don't mean something's wrong. It's just... There's a moment of weakness. Now, we get through that. We soldier on or whatever, but there's something really miraculous about some, somebody praying for you and laying their hands on you. Well, I think there is. And for me, there is. And this, I'll tell you, this sacrament, more than probably most of the other ones, 
is, is high on my list, high on my list for having a physical experience of God. Yes, sir. said he performed an exorcism and anointed the person that Yeah, you know, it's interesting that... I just, I just thought that was weird. Yeah, James has said that, that he, he knew an Episcopal monk or was in the presence of one that had performed an, an, an exorcism, particularly up in Canada around, you know, native tribes like the Inuit. And, of course, exorcism is not one of our sacraments. It may be interesting for you to know, though, that there is an exorcism rite in the Episcopal Church, but priests don't do it. There's apparently some kind of secret book they give you when you're uh, consecrated a bishop called the Bishop's Book. And in the Bishop's Book, apparently, is the secret exorcism rite. Some canon to the ordinaries have performed this rite because... They can access the secret bishop's book. I don't know what else is in it. I'm sort of curious to flip through. I'm not curious enough to want to be a bishop. That seems like that'd be dreadful. But um, really, in most ways, I'm sure our bishops love doing it, but I just don't think that's for everybody. So, um, so we do have the right. And, and uh, we grew up in the evangelical tradition ready to talk to evil spirits. I, I just can tell you I categorically don't understand it even though i've had weird experiences like you all have walking into particular places and having the hair stand up on your neck i don't know what that means you know i don't know what it means it happened to me oddly enough in auschwitz birkenau which actually kind of makes sense because i knew that was this place of awful you know and it wasn't i think because i was just there it's because on the back side of the fence i heard children playing on a playground and there was something about hearing children noise in the middle of this place of like hell on earth that was just I I don't know it wasn't just like nauseating it was also just really wrong oddly enough I had the same experience when I went to the Crystal Cathedral not not in the uh, not in the church but they built this tower that kind of looks like a Saturn missile aimed at Russia and if it's made on glass and if you go in it I don't know the hairs on my neck stood up it was the strangest thing yeah, my wife, her house in California, um, when they moved there, one of the rooms was painted black. I mean, the ceiling and the walls was really strange. And every Halloween, for a couple of years after they moved there, some goat le- 